Amen. What a joy it is to be with you, brothers and sisters in Christ. We never take for granted ever again how important Christian fellowship is and the encouragement of each other's faith. Uh, I just uh, pray the love of Jesus and the celebration of Christmas just abounds in your hearts as we continue our worship. Um, we've had a hard year, that's for sure, and many have said that. And God has just impressed on my heart uh, a deep desire to preach, keep preaching as much as this body will allow me to do until he calls me to glory. And um, I'm just very humbled that I'm even able to be here a year after it seemed uh, pretty clear I was I was uh, close to to a passing uh, on last year at this time. And um, I just praise God for that, and I'm humbled by that. Uh, and it's such a privilege to proclaim God's word. Um, our creator has given the human race the wonderful capacity for imagination. Along with that imagination, we dream. We have aspirations. We bring things up in our mind and we look into the future and hope that reality will conform to that. We invent things. We fantasize about things unknown. We, um, when we were kids, we used all of that gift for imagination and fantasy in our childhood games and we had a fun time doing it. Some really crazy stuff we'd get into as kids, remember? And then now as adults, uh, we have not lost the capacity for imagination. We still have it. We just translate it into some of the other things we do, the work that we have and inventions that are made, even virtual reality. And there's some amazing things being invented these days. We love and enjoy imagining things. Why is that? Well, because you and I were made in the image of another. The other is our creator. When he made us, he didn't just make us, he made us in his image. He made us to bear some uh, resemblance to him. Um, and uh, we imagine. God imagines, and so we imagine. God is imaginative, and so we also show that imagination in many different ways. Uh, there's nothing, I think, more imaginative than looking at a creation and just studying some things intricately the way the scientist does and see, wow, that is amazing. Look at the snowflakes. There's so many snowflakes, and yet we're told not one is like the other. They're so intricate and beautiful. The designs, the patterns, or you look at a sunset in the, in the evening splattered over some of the trees, the forest, and the clouds, and you think, look how beautiful that is. Well, someone imagined that, drew that out, so to say, and planned that, and then made it. You watch a flock of birds in their migration patterns all of a sudden shifting in the air and all keeping with one another, and you're like, wow, who thought of that? And we know the answer, God did. All that we see in nature had its origin with an imaginative God. Well, I would venture to say that even that pales, even creation pales to what God imagined that he would do and bring about in the story of mankind, in the story of the deliverance of mankind, in the story of redemption. It says in Ephesians 3.20, um, this is the NIV. It says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You could sit and think of something and imagine it. That verse says God can do so much more even than what you can imagine. And that's not meant to be exaggeration. That's meant to be true about God. He could do anything. Nothing will be impossible with God, the angel said. He could carry out all of the imaginations. This is just amazing. Well, it is Christmas time. What did God do at Christmas? You sit and think about it. It's so familiar to us. We say it every single year, and maybe it loses some of its luster because we've heard the story for so many decades, some of us. But keep an open mind and think about it again because it's fantastic. It's fantastic truth. And I think it really impacts us when we understand what he did exactly to worship and to rejoice even more. I want you to open to the Gospel of John today, to chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 18. I'm going to go ahead and read, actually, the first three verses of the Gospel of John also, um, just so we can get the context. But turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We'll be focusing on verses 14 to 18, but I'm going to start at the beginning. It says in John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has 
come into being. He even says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, this is referring to John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten one or only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's amazing. You've heard of frogs turned into princes. (laughs) You've heard of pumpkins turned into carriages. And people will say, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Verse 14, look at it. It speaks not about a dream, but about reality. It tells of the eternal God of the entire universe, the almighty and infinite, majestic, what we would say, supreme being, the one who made every single thing on this planet that you can find, and all the glory of the millions of galaxies, billions of galaxies that we view with our telescopes somewhere far beyond. That one who made all of that, he became a man. He became one of us. He came down here and walked around on this same soil, this planet we call Earth. He lived right down here among us. He dwelt here. He was seen. He didn't hide. He was seen. He was touched. He was spoken to. He was held by people. He was known. He was known by name. Now that is imaginative wonder beyond anything else. That's a reality that is just simply amazing. And really, that's the purpose of what we call John's prologue here in verses 1 through 18. Verses 1 through 18 forms a literary unit, and it opens the great record of the life of Jesus. Really, it's telling us about uh, something that happens before his life starts. He talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and then verse 14, the Word became flesh. So he's going back before time, before Jesus' life also, and it's opening it all up for us. And who wrote this? An eyewitness of Jesus' life. John the Apostle. And what is he writing about? The wonders of God becoming a man. Really, one of the most important rules in Bible interpretation is to interpret every verse in its context to make sure you're listening to the flow of thought so you're not taking verses out of context and putting your own meaning into it. Well, here at verse 14, maybe it's the most concise statement of what we call the biblical doctrine of God's incarnation. The word became flesh. And we know that because we go back To the context, we go to verse 1 and we see it's the eternal God, the one who is with God, the one who is God, he became flesh. That's the context. And actually, if you look at verses 14 through 18, it's talking about two, and I'm going to describe it this way, two fantastic works of God. Two fantastic works of God. There's first the incarnation, and then there is the fantastic revelation. The fantastic incarnation, and then followed by the fantastic revelation. Would you take a trip of wonder with me as we consider first the fantastic incarnation, and that's at verse 14. Look at it again at the beginning of the verse. And it says, and we're going to go a little slowly here, and the word became flesh. Kai halagas sarks egeneto. Kai, just a simple, common Greek term. It's the word and. How many times do we use the word and when we write something or we say? Very common, right? A conjunction. A little marker that takes the reader back to those opening two, three verses that I read also. Back to verse one. Back to the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Then verse 14, and the word was God and dwelled among us. Of course, John is referencing the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. The Son was with God the Father. The Son was also God. He's with God and he was God. So he's not the Father, but he is God. So he's with God and yet he is God. And there's that perplexity. It's cracking open the doctrine of the Trinity and understanding that there are multiple persons in the one Godhead, but there's only one God. And he's connecting all of that together. And that God in his form and who he is, He became flesh. So don't miss that connection, that and. 
you know, even the little article, the word the, and the word indicates which word John's talking about. Not a word became flesh, the word. The same word who was with God, the same word who was God, verse 1 and verse 2, is the word who became flesh. Another rule of good Bible interpretation is that since every single word in the Bible is from God, then every word in the Bible is worthy of study, right? It means it all comes out from the breath of God. It's all theonoustos. It's breathed out by the mouth of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And so every single word is from God. Yes, it passed through a human author, but it's really God's choice of a word. And so that word, not just in context, but the word itself is worthy of study. Actually, it's greater than that. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, um, Jesus explained his own view of the Bible. I remember studying this when I was in college and I was trying to figure out what kind of a Christian I wanted to be. And I thought, you know, we Christians should believe the Bible, but how closely would we believe the Bible? And I thought to myself, I want to believe the Bible the same way that Jesus believed the Bible. What was his view of the Bible? And I remember coming across this verse and a few others. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, where he said, not one iota, not one Kariah would pass away from the law in the Old Testament until all of it was accomplished. That word iota is the smallest little Greek letter, and the, the term Kariah was the smallest stroke inside of a Greek letter. And so we believe not only that every word mattered to God and every word came out of the mouth of God, but even the letters, nay, even the little parts of the letters were all, also chosen by God. Biblical inspiration is that intense. It extends down to the very parts of the letters. You know, the parts of the letters form the letters, the letters form the words, and the words form the phrases, and the phrases form the sentences, and all of that comes from God, and it's worthy of our paying attention to it and studying it and squeezing everything we can out of it to understand what is the truth that is there. Well, I'll tell you, John chapter 1 and many other uh, scholars through the ages have been just amazed, just flabbergasted at how precise this prologue is concerning truth about the Son of God and His incarnation. It brings us the very thoughts of God as He imagined and brings it down into the text of Scripture that we can read. And now we can understand that's what He's saying. Oh, I get it. And now in our minds, we understand what God had in His mind. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Nobody knows everything in the entire universe except for the Spirit of God. Spirit of God searches the very depths of God, and he took that search of God's mind, and he put his thoughts into the letters and words in Scripture, and now we have it, we study it, we unfold it, we preach it until we get it. And then in our own minds, we have the same thoughts he had in his mind because it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the whole process anyway. Just as amazing to me. And John's choice of using even that term word, we're like, why would a person be called a word? That's a little bit strange. Even that choice, the word for a person, is interesting. It's worth kind of thinking about. In Greek, it's the term logos. You've heard that before, I'm sure. It was a common word also. We get our word logic from it. It referred to reasoning a word that had meaning in it, reason in it. Now, the Greek philosophers during this day and age, they generally agreed uh, that the universe was made in some reasonable and logical fashion, that there was meaning and logic to everything in the universe. They didn't know God. They didn't really know who he was. They were idol worshipers. But they agreed that there was something really intelligent about the way everything was put together and held together. Um, they would speak of an eternal principle of wisdom. They would believe it permeated the world. Some eternal logic that gave everything meaning. In their writings and in their thinking, Lagos was like a central principle of the universe. And um, to other philosophers, it was even greater than that. It was the ultimate reason almost that was spoken of as creator. Well, John, the apostle, is not agreeing with the Greek philosophers here by choosing to use this term logos of Jesus. John knows that the maker of the universe was not some impersonal logic. You know, you, you listen to some of the movies nowadays, and it's very, really popular for someone to say, well, fate has chosen that we do such and such. And we ask, well, what is fate? 
Is that a person, a place, or a thing? What is that? And the answer is they don't know what it is. They just use it because they don't want to use the word God, right? Who's a person? I don't know why all of them use it. But John's not agreeing that it's some impersonal logic or faith that has made the universe and designed it. Rather, John is pointing the reader to a person. I mean, that's what the whole gospel of John is about, is about a person. But that person is a life with logic and reason embodied. And John wants to tell them about that person, that the Greeks had part of an understanding that was correct, but they really missed who it was. And John was going to declare that for them. You know, the Greeks of those days were like many of the educated people that surround us today. They seem so smart and in many cases are so arrogant, like they really know what is true and what is right, and they don't. But they're ever learning and they're reading books and they got plenty of books and they read blogs and they're ever learning. But as the scripture says, they never arrive at the truth, right? They never get the truth. But the word was a real person, the real eternal person that they never came to know. The word was continuously and forever the all-wise creator and the sustainer of the universe. Would you look back to verse 3 of John 1 a second? It says, all things were created by him. It declares that. And then you might even notice uh, in verses 1 and 2 that the verb that is used there is the verb was in verses 1 and 2. That's an indicative, imperfect verb. It indicates a continuous existence of the word. The word was, in other words, he, he was living this way. He existed in this form. He was with God and he was God. And so this word was a person. He was always there. And that person skillfully brought everything in the universe into existence. Here's another rule of good Bible interpretation. Always let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? Since the source of every single word and every single passage is ultimately God. Same author, same mind behind every passage. So they ultimately should agree with one another. And well, what, what is another place in the Bible that references the ultimate beginning of time in the beginning? <laughs> and, and we can see those same words. Well, obviously, John is referencing Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1. John, John meant for us, as, he, as we read the opening to his gospel, in the beginning was the word, for us to immediately go, wait a minute, I thought in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and there's an immediate connection we make to put those truths together. It's not coincidental that Genesis 1 sounds similar to John or John sounds similar to Genesis. We see the same relationship between God and his word back in Genesis. When God spoke during the six literal days of creation, what happened? Well, he spoke and words came out of his mouth and they instantly created. God said, let there be light and presto, there was light, right? It didn't like wait for a long period of time to evolve light. Light just happened, you know? And then God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. That did not take millions of years. It says, and, and it just happened. Let the waters teem with living creatures, it says in Genesis. And it was instantly so. The eternal word was with God and working. For the word was the creator of all these things. And even Genesis early on is hinting at the Trinity. And so God works with God for God is one. And we're left to ponder that mystery and we really can't put it all together. But here, back in the Gospel of John, verse 14, for the very first time, don't miss this, for the very first time, the word is mentioned again by John, and this time, the verb that is used is the verb became. Became, an indicative aorist from a very common verb, ginomai in Greek. The word not just was, the word, though having continuous existence, the word now changed in some way. Now the, the word became something. That, mo that marks a moment in time, a change. It speaks of something that the word was now made into. Don't misunderstand. It does not mean that the word ceased being the word. It does not mean that the word ceased being anything that it already was up to that point in time. But that the word also became something else. Fascinating, amazing, fantastic, imaginative. In other words, the eternal word took on some new existence, 
took on some new nature that he did not have before that point. And what was that? And the word became, you say it, flesh. That's the new thing. Human flesh. True humanity. Again, please do not misunderstand. The word did not merely assume some physical appearance so as to fool people and look like he became a human being. That's how some people in their heresies through church history interpreted that. That wouldn't be anything spectacular anyways, would it? Angels before had come out of the spirit realm and appeared and looked like they manifested in some way. We don't even know what that was. God himself had granted visions to prophets in Old Testament times to uh, reveal some aspect of himself to his own people. That wasn't new. That's recorded in the Old Testament. God had done that before. We call those theophanies. This goes way beyond those manifestations. John's choice of words here is exact. The word did not become like flesh. The word became flesh. Again, I say, fantastic, imaginative. Oh, please don't be so familiar with the Christmas story that you miss how shocking this declaration is. The eternal God, the second person of the triune Godhead, who always was, who created with God and was God, became flesh, human flesh. Now, the context is not Paul writing about how we need to battle against our sinful flesh. So this doesn't mean he became sinful flesh. This means he became a human being. Flesh is the noun sarks, and it often is simply used to mean a human being, a human flesh, a real, tangible human like you and me. John could have used another term in Greek, the term soma, and it just means the body, like the external part of our existence, the body. He could have used the term for a human being, anthropos, but he uses the stark and clear term. Some even say crass term. And he uses flesh, showing he's a real human being down to his very flesh, down to his nature. Notice, look back up one verse to verse 13, how John uses Sark's in the previous verse, John 1.13, speaking of the new birth where we're born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, not of the will of a human being, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the new birth when we're born again into Christ. It's not, it's not us willing ourselves to be born again. God, God has to do that. But in the use of that term flesh there, it means the same thing, human being. Flesh refers to humanity that which has blood in it, and is of man, in other words. And by the way, Paul uses this term this way many times. You can look up Romans 1, 3. John uses it this way also, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2. To become flesh, to become human, obviously means the word now took on a human existence and a human body as well. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5 speaks of Jesus' real human body being offered up as a sacrifice unto God. To summarize all of that then, verse 14 speaks of the infleshing of the eternal creator word who is God. You got that? Just as John was crystal clear about the deity of Christ back in verse 1, the word was God, so now he is crystal clear about the humanity of Christ, the word became flesh, exact language. I love that. I love clarity. I hate being confused. <laughs> and God's word often doesn't need much interpretation, just careful observation. One person, the God-man. That's who John is writing about. That's our Jesus. In fact, his human name is even supplied. Look down at verse 17. Grace and truth were realized through, not through Moses. That name was already given. Moses did what he was supposed to do. But there's a new guy in town. <laughs> there's a new guy in Israel. And he's bringing something greater than Moses. Grace and truth were realized through who? You give me the name. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. Jesus King. Jesus Messiah. 
Jesus, the chosen anointed one. What a blessed name, Jesus. May you never use that name as a cuss word, beloved. You may never swear by that name and bring that name lowly. For you know that one day you and I are going to be in heaven if you're a believer. And every knee in heaven and on the earth and under the earth is going to bow before that person and confess the person with that name as the greatest in the universe. Amen? His alone, his name alone is the name that's above every name. And I'm very happy about that. The main goal of your life, the main goal of your family, the main goal of this church should always be to make that name great and famous. Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior, the Son of God. That's who he is. Again, I say Jesus did not just appear as human, he was human. As human as you or me. Born of a real human woman. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Yes, it makes a difference whether you're male or female, by the way. Through the doorway into humanity, the word now entered into a new existence he didn't have before. A new state of nature and being. This goes beyond man's fantasy and imagination. He actually did it. <laughs> he did it. He accomplished it. And please never forget this. When the Word became a man, the Word never ceased being God. He didn't get rid of God and become a man. He kept God and added man. That's the new state of existence. That puts him in a unique class no one else is in. He added the flesh. If he had ceased to be the eternal word, that would defeat the whole purpose of him becoming flesh to redeem mankind. He would just be another man with another body, not the word made flesh. He had to be both the eternal word and then become human flesh. 100% God, missing nothing of what it makes God to be God, all of his attributes available to him if he chose to use them, including his omnipotence, his omniscience, his eternality, his immutability, his sovereignty. The Son of God, one with the Father, and 100% man, missing nothing of what it makes man to be man. By the way, man was man before he was a sinner, so there's no sin in Jesus, and no necessity to have sin in Jesus for him to be human. In the words of Colossians 2.9, it's put so succinctly, all in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In the incarnation, that means God being made flesh, nothing of the divine essence was surrendered, nothing was lost. For God ceasing to be God would be a silly and meaningless statement anyways. God, by definition, is the eternal, unchanging I am. And yet here he became a human in every way like unto us except with sin. And he refused to use his eternal powers. He had them available to himself, but he self-imposed limitations upon himself so that now he would hunger and he would thirst and he would experience fatigue and he would choose to have to grow and choose to have to learn. Later he would bleed and he would die for the sins of man and he would rise bodily from the dead. He became every way like us except sin. I say again, for sin is not inherent in being human. Now, John does not describe how the Word became flesh. He does not give us the mechanics about how all of this worked out. He just declares that it happened. The job, left, the, the job of describing how this happened was left to two other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke. They conveyed to us what we call the Christmas story. In Matthew 1, in that great passage, verses 18 to 23, it words it this way, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And you scratch your head and say, uh, how did that happen? Well, that's what we're given. Joseph was told, behold, the virgin shall be with child. In fact, the whole nation of Israel was. In Luke 1, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What happened? The miracle of God in the body of Mary produced a miraculous conception and 
Those are the mechanics of it, beyond my understanding. We could say it this way, like father, like son. The son just like the father. That is the fantastic incarnation, beloved. And second, and don't miss this because this is the blessing to us. How do we even know that? How can we even talk about that? How can we even rejoice in that truth? And it's because the second part here, the fantastic revelation, really from the second part of verse 14 to, to the, all the way down, and I'm just going to summarize the passage, but it says uh, in verse 14, uh, he came and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and lived or dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. That word did not only become flesh, but he lived among us. I love this because this is where it connects to us. Look at what God did. He didn't just become some human being somewhere. It says he lived among us. This is where it connects to us. This is where it gets personal. This is where we realize the kind of God we have, that he wanted to be right down there among us. In fact, the verb dwelt in Greek is skenao. It means to fix one's tabernacle or to have one's tabernacle or abide or live in a tabernacle or even the verb to tabernacle. It refers to putting the stakes down in the ground, so to say, and, and, and to, to live there. You, you would pull up stakes and you would move and then you'd put the tent down in another place and that meant that's the location now where you're going to live. That's what he did. He came down here. He put his stakes down, so to say, and he said, I'm going to live among you guys. That's so exciting. It's so meaningful. By the way, it's used this way in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15 and Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you realize the image that's supposed to arise in your mind as you read about this. And that is the Old Testament tabernacle, right? God actually did live among his people back then, right? That tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. Isn't that neat? You want to meet with God? That's where he is. He's in that tabernacle. That's where we meet God. You notice that it shines uh, at nighttime sometimes, and that shows you God is there. Or the cloud is over, and it's like, oh, God is there now. This portable construction that the Israelites were commanded to build after their exodus from Egypt and their time of slavery was where God chose to live. He didn't want to live anywhere else. He wanted to live right there. He had all of the rules about the way it was going to be built and what material was going to be used, the design in it, who was allowed in it, when they were allowed to go in it, because his holy presence would be there. And Israel in their camps surrounded it and they were being trained, this is how you approach God and this is how you do not approach God because he's living among us, you see. But there's distance there. The priests, had to, the priests had to kind of go in there and intercede between the people and God. And only the high priest got, in the, got to go into the innermost sanctuary of that tabernacle, the, the Holy of Holies, and he only once a year. And so God had commanded that this tabernacle be there as an illustration of his presence. In fact, he said, in Exodus 25, 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may live, dwell among them. In Exodus 40 and 34, it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There he is in his glory. That's the parallel. The parallel is just as that tabernacle stood among the Israelites as the place to reveal the glory of God, to see God, in other words to know this is him and his presence with us. Jesus arrived in a body as a human being, and he pitched his earthly tent, so to say, his body, so that he could live among us, the us being all the people that got to see him, the disciples especially. And then in, in living among us, reveal the glory of God to us. This is his imagination at work again, the, the fantastic revealing of God even a greater revealing of what God is than the Old Testament. Really, in Old Testament times, they didn't get to see God all that much. Moses wanted to. He climbs up the mountain. He's got a very special relationship with God. He has been said to be the prophet that's even in a greater relationship with God than the other prophets. God said, you know, uh, Moses is special. The law of God came through Moses. 
And you think a guy like that, he's going to get to see God in all of his glory. Not so. Moses prayed to see God's glory in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. But God said in verse 20 of that same chapter, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And so the arrangement was made while my glory is passing by, I will put you Moses in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take my hand away and you will see my back, but you shall not see my face. And so the revelation that was given back then of God's glory in many places was a lesser glory. Here through Jesus Christ, John is writing, it's a greater glory. It's a greater revealing of God. Please notice down in verse 18, John 1:18, Jesus is said right there, that he reveals the invisible God and that Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is taking the place of the tabernacle and the temple. He is now where we meet God. He is now where we perceive God, we see God. He's the greater manifestation. He's the greater glory. John, I think he's writing this emphatically. And verse 14, we beheld his glory. Man, what a privilege. We, we got to see his glory. The us and the we are those eyewitnesses in the first century. They beheld Jesus. That verb, by the way, is theatomai. We get our word theater from it. We're the ones that got to be the spectators of this. We saw it. We were in the special privileged position to see it and write about it. John saw Jesus. And wrote about him. And Jesus is the perfect revealing of the invisible God. Indeed, Mary and Joseph got to hold in their own hands the eternal word. Is it no wonder that the wise men traveled so far just to see him? Just to see him in his bodily presence? God was living right there with them, up close and personal. Is it any wonder? John begins his first, let, his first letter, 1 John. The life was manifested. The eternal life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is the way God relates to us through Jesus, the God-man. As they beheld the Lord Jesus, they beheld God's glory. Anybody that rejects this truth rejects the true God. For he is the very glory of God. If people look at Jesus and say, yeah, I don't think he's the son of God. Yeah, I don't think he's really all that special. Yeah, I don't think he reveals God in any special way. This verse says, but he's the very glory of God. Doxa, we get doxology from it, where we glorify God. He's the glory of God. He's the brightness and the splendor of God. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in a number of different ways, dreams, visions, angelic appearances, theophanies, we've mentioned them. But in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. You never improve on that. Here in this one human being, from swaddling clothes to the cross of Calvary and beyond, is the glory of the true God on display. When people ask, what is God like? God has already answered that question. I am like my son. The same glory Moses beheld in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of Exodus 40, the glory Solomon saw in the temple as it descended in 1 Kings 8, is now manifest to men and it's greater. Well, how fantastic is that? And in fact, it's further explained by the rest of the verse. Glory as of the only begotten one from the Father. This glory is so great of a glory of the Father. It is the glory of the only begotten one from the Father. The one that was right there with the Father. The Father has sent 
And now that is the one that displays the glory of the Father. You don't get any more personal. You don't get any more close. You don't get any more exact than that. It's the glory that belongs to the only begotten one of God. The term monongenes. Only begotten probably, scholars who have analyzed this word more recently, better to translate it the way the NIV or the ESV has it, the one and only son. The only son from the father. The one who's in a unique relationship to God that no one else in the universe is in. The term is used of the widow of Nain's only son in Luke 7, 12. It's used of Jairus' only daughter in Luke 8, 42. It's also used of Isaac in Hebrews eleven seventeen, who was not Abraham's only biological son, for Abraham also gave birth to Ishmael, you may remember, but Isaac was his dearest son. Isaac was his son of promise, his special son, his unique son, his one-of-a-kind son. And thus Jesus stands in unique relation to the Father, for he alone is the same exact essence as the Father. That's what it means if you go down to verse 18 again. No one has seen God at any time. Wow, what an emphatic statement. No one has seen God at any time. So when someone, by the way, comes along and says, I've seen God, they're a liar, by the way, just for a side note. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten one or the only one of God who's in the bosom of the Father. He, the Son, has explained him, the Father. And that means he's explained them perfectly. You know, when the cults come along and they say, but we have more to tell about God that Jesus did not reveal, you know right away they're liars. And again, I tell you, what did God the Father say of Jesus at Jesus' baptism? This one year, this one is my beloved son. There is no other. There is no son of God like Jesus. You and I are adopted sons of God through faith in Jesus. Amen? That's Ephesians 1.5, Galatians 4.5. But we're not the eternal, only begotten Son of God. Jesus is that. Jesus is one in essence with the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Again, no one in his class. The incarnation of God has no parallel. No other human being fits that. The incarnation of God will never be repeated in the universe, ever. Because no one is ever going to reveal God like Jesus did. Jesus is no fantasy, beloved. He is the truth. And he reveals God, truly. The two, the two attributes of God, and we'll close with this, that Jesus reveals about the Father. And these are not the only two, but it's interesting that John chose these two. The two attributes that Jesus reveals about God are he is full of grace and truth. If you were to choose two attributes, you'd say, what did Jesus reveal about God the Father? And you were to pick two and say, uh, these are the two things that he revealed about, about God. I don't know. Would you have chosen those two? I don't know that I would have. I was thinking about this the first time I studied this passage way back, and it's amazing. Full of grace and truth. Full is play race. It just means to be abounding or filled with or stuffed full with. Jesus' glory that he reveals of the Father, that glory was abounding, was overflowing with grace and truth. That refers to God's glory in terms of his character. You know, the, the apostles got a glimpse of God's eternal power glory when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus' garments were transformed and all of that deity from the inside shone out of his body and the disciples were just amazed. This was Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're like, what's happening to him? Here he is. He just usually looked like a normal man like you and me and all of a sudden all of this this power is coming out of him and all of this light is coming out of him and that was the glory of God also. That's referring to his 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 eternal power, I guess, referring to his shining glory. But here, John is writing about his character. 
Because most of the time when they saw Jesus and they were hanging out with Jesus, they just kind of saw him operating as another human being. And what was that like? What was it like being around Jesus? What was his character like? And he summarizes it with these two words, grace and truth, full of grace and truth. You know grace, charis, that unmerited favor from God, a gift by becoming incarnate. God gave his greatest manifestation of his own personal love for his people. Nowhere is the love of God revealed more than in the person of Jesus and that God gave his son in grace. I want you to know how much I love you and how much I give to you. And the, the Lord Jesus himself gave up all the, the glories and the fame of heaven and all the angels worshiping him. And he came into this place where he was not really all that recognized. And then he suffered and he died and he experienced shame down here with people shaming him and treating him poorly. That shows God loves us. He gave his, God gave his greatest gift, his own son. I mean, Christmas, we give gifts to each other. God gave the greatest gift to us already, his own son. And his own son gave of his own self. And we ask ourselves, how could anybody ever love me more? How could I be convinced of God's love more than this? That God the Father gave his most precious son, his only begotten son. For who? For who? who did he give it to? Who got that great and that grand gift? Who was the recipient of that huge big package there? And the answer is I was and you were. And that should convince you that God loves you. God is full of love, full of grace. But he's also full of truth. Truth is not just something that is true but the truth, the ultimate truth. Grace, grace is giving and truth is demanding. Truth requires you to respond to it. God gave truth through Jesus. According to John 3.31, truth must be practiced. According to Psalm 51.6, God requires truth in your innermost being. At his trial, the mockery of a trial, Jesus stood before Pilate in John 18, 37, and he declared, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Grace and truth, grace and truth, full of them. This reveals and summarizes God's very character to us. He said, why, again, those two attributes? Did you know that in the Old Testament, when God himself wanted to summarize his character, there could be a long list of attributes. God is patient and, and God has compassion. And you could go through all kinds of attributes. We do that in our attributes of God class. But when God speaks of himself and he summarizes his character, he uses these same two attributes for himself. He speaks of himself as being full of loving kindness and truth. That's the same, grace and truth. In fact, when God passed by, in front of Moses in that Exodus 34, 6 passage, God declared himself to Moses. He declared who he was. And it says this, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. And here it is, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Same thing, full of grace and truth. Chesed and emet. God abounds in grace and truth. And I just love that. I love the fact that my God is giving and generous and kind and he has seen the worst of me and he loves me and he'll never let me go and he sent his son to die for me and I'm secure in his love and I may be suffering now and I may feel neglected now, but he has already demonstrated the greatness and the eternality of his love towards me and that will never change. That will never change. I will always be loved by God and so will you. But he also is the eternal God of truth. He is truth. He speaks truly, but he is truth. Everything he says is true. Everything he says is real. Every promise he makes to us will come about. And he only speaks in truth categories. And he demands truth from his own people. He demands truth from you and me. That's what he revealed about God. The eternal God, the word, runs the universe, created the universe, eternally existed as God, became flesh, lived among us, and revealed the glory of the invisible God perfectly to us 
And the revealing of that glory, that shining character of the invisible God is a God so full of grace, so full of truth. It should just excite us. It should just humble us who he is. I don't know, you know, when we sing some of these Christmas carols that you realize how much truth they stuffed into these Christmas carols. But some of them are, well, some of them are kind of flighty. But some of them are just so amazingly rich with truth and doctrine. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. I could do a whole sermon on that. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. You know, sometimes people ask, when you preach a sermon like that, what are we supposed to do with that? What's the application, Pastor? What are we supposed to do with it? And uh, I'm going to tell you, you need to believe it. (laughs) You need to believe it. What's the application for this? What, What do I do with that kind of a message? And the answer is, you need to believe that. If you don't believe Jesus is the eternal God made flesh, there's no hope for your soul. This is the truth you're to believe and to be saved by. And if you already believe it, here's your application. And it's very simple. Just come forward and bow low and adore your God and worship him. This is Jesus Christ. This is the God we worship. There is, you could search the world of religions and you will never find this love and you'll never find this truth because there is No God really in their worship at all. Here is the true God who loves you and loves me. I know we went over time a little bit, but I think that we still have a song to sing because I would like us to sing. Come on up, Brandon. I'll just close in prayer. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the incarnation of your son, this imagination that you showed to uh, redeem us by coming to live among us. Father, I am so humbled by this. And I pray you would deepen our love for you and for your son through the truth that we've learned. In Jesus' blessed name, amen.